furniture, appliances, mattress, fam.news. Is it March Madness or have the Marks just gone mad? Your guess is as good as mine, but this week and all month long, actually, we are going to be pulling classic episodes from the archives for you to enjoy because the principles are just as relevant today as they were back when we recorded them. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy this 2020 episode with John Spolstra. Englanders stole the entire show. It smokes all the other national brands because you're getting more of the high-grade materials. Perfectly designed where it just feels great. Katie and Greg Law, Sweet Dreams Mattress and Furniture. We get the best reactions from our customers on the Englander products. They tend to lay down on the bed and it's like a wow factor. And then they're either done with the whole shopping process or they try a few more and none of them feel as good as that original one that they laid down on. Learn more and get started today at englander.com. Welcome to the Dos Marco Show with Mark Kinsley and Mark Quinn. Galaxy's greatest mattress podcast has liftoff in... I'm really excited because we have a special guest on the show today. And one of his books, this has been sitting on my shelf for many years. John, let's just jump into John Spolstra. Who is this on the front of this book? Do you know this person? Uh, you know, the funny thing is uh, the publisher came up with the idea, Ray Bard, about having, we wanted to have a cover of a book that would stop people and want to pick up the book and look at it. And he said, how about, because I came out of the NBA basketball business, he said, how about a sumo wrestler, because I had used uh, sumo wrestlers as a gag act when I was president of the New Jersey Nets. He said, how about a sumo wrestler in the Michael Jordan dunk pose? And I said, that's terrific. That would stop anybody. But where are you going to find a sumo wrestler that can do that? And he says, don't worry about it. And a few days later, Ray called me up and he said, I've got it. And spoiler alert, that uh, rim doesn't necessarily have to be the one that he was going after to dunk. <laughs> a little it's bit of a Photoshop. Look at, look at the, what I love is the detail. Look at his tongue. Right. Yeah, the tongue's well, out. That was Michael, get Jordan. That Michael Jordan. So the one thing is he did have like some tattoos on his arm and we had to airbrush those out because mm. tattoos in Japan meant Yakuza or the gangsters, but he was a Samoan. Um, and he was terrific. His first name is Nate. I don't know what his last name is, but he, uh, he did a great job. It looks like he dunked that really fiercely. Well, I'll tell you what, whenever I first came across your work, John, uh, I went and looked at your books. And of course, I see the cover of the book. And I thought to myself, if you can grab people's attention, you might have a chance at selling them something. You talk about that a lot. Let me give you a proper intro, though, here before we jump into some fun stuff. So John Spolster, you've been the general manager of the Portland Trail Blazers and president of the New Jersey Nets. You've authored four books that I know about, Wall Street Journal bestseller called Marketing Outrageously Redux, which you're looking at right now if you're seeing the video portion of this. College professor, speaker, consultant. You happen to be the father of the head coach in the Miami Heat, Mr. Eric Spolstra, and you are John Spolstra. And you're somebody we've been familiar with for a long time. And I'm the original Coach Spo. You're the, the original coach, Spo. So, John, have, has it evolved to where you're no longer John, you're just Eric's dad? Oh, yeah. That, that's, uh, <laughs> that's what I go by. 
<laughs> you know, look, I think this is a, is, could be a fun place to start. Not necessarily fun, but relevant. So sports in general shut down right now. Give us the lay of the land in the sports world and what you're seeing and who's handling opportunity well, who's failing, and how this thing shakes out, in your opinion. Well, if I was uh, heading a team, I would not shut down right now the marketing. Um, I think this is sort of similar, uh, akin to uh, when I was with the Nets. Uh, there was going to be a lockdown, but that was between management and players, that they were in the negotiations for the collective bargaining of the players. And it was going to be lockdown. We were told we could miss the entire season. So if you take a look at baseball right now, nobody knows, are they going to play? If they are going to play, when are they going to play? Uh, basketball, the same thing. Hockey, football, there's a question of whether college football is going to be played. I would, if I was running a team right now, I would assume that all those are going to play. We just don't know when. So like in New Jersey, well, and we were prohibited in New Jersey. We had an awful team. The team won, I don't know, 19 or 20 games out of 80. Our star was disliked vehemently by our fan base. Derek Coleman, highly, uh, highly skilled player, but not popular with the fans. So we couldn't even say that we were going to trade him. We couldn't mention any player name. Uh, we couldn't even mention the opponents. Like we couldn't say uh, Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls are going to be coming into town or Magic Johnson, the Lakers. We couldn't mention anything with the opponents. So we had to sell, what we were stuck with was a team that was awful. And the last memories that fans had of that team was uh, the players who they hated. And how could we ever sell more tickets? Oh, and the, uh, the hockey team that we shared the same arena, they won the Stanley Cup. So they had selling victories. In the off season, uh, we came up with a guarantee that our salespeople would go and call on a business and the business person would say, look, I'm not going to buy any of your damn tickets because I don't know if you're going to play. And I don't, I hate Derek Coleman. I'm not going to buy any tickets. We couldn't even say we're going to trade them. But what we could say is we're going to give you a guarantee that if you don't like the composition of the team, whenever fall camp is, fall camp might be in November, it might be in December, it might be January. If you don't like the composition of the team when the fall camp begins, you get your money back plus prime rate interest. And so that take the, took the objection off the table. And then we could talk about how you could use tickets effectively, uh, entertaining or with employees or whatever. That helped us increase our ticket sales dollar volume more than the Devils who had just won the, the title. And they didn't have that lockdown problem. But we had 20 salespeople out there selling and they weren't impeded at all. So I think with this, this is akin to that because you just don't know when you're going to start. You don't know about this, uh, how it's going to start, meaning that um, are there going to be fans there? And if there are going to be fans there, is there social distancing inside? My feeling is that I would go ahead as if there's going to be a season and I'd sell it and I'd come up with a guarantee that we'd return money with, it'd have to be better than prime rate because prime rate right now isn't very much, but it would have to become a, you know, some type of uh, value to it. 
You know, John, Mark Cuban wrote the foreword. Oh, oh and, I, and I wouldn't lay anybody off. I know that teams have laid a lot of people off. I wouldn't lay anybody off. We're, we're going out there to sell. Speaking of that, Mark Cuban, who wrote the foreword for your book, um, was very verbal on that in terms of not wanting to lay people off. And I think he had some unique opinions about, about the season. <laughs> you have any thoughts about uh, kind of how he approached it compared to some of the other guys? Um, I haven't seen his comments on that. Uh, yeah, I, the, it, one of the, the neat things I picked up from it is he didn't want to lay anyone off, and he was trying yeah. to encourage other people to, to keep their team together and keep the – even the people in the, you know, that, that uh, are the vendors in the, in the building selling the, right. the beers and things like that. So I, I respect his approach to it. That was pretty cool. Well, I was – thinking more of like the employees. We didn't lay anybody off when uh, this lockdown was in the NBA. They went. Well, they didn't start until Christmas. I, th I think it was Christmas Day. So they missed uh, October, November, December in the league that year. And um, we didn't lay anybody off. In fact, we hired people. I'm glad there was a season that year. We only, and we didn't lose as many games as a previous year, because there weren't as many games to lose. John, when you look at the teams that are shut down and are facing uncertainty, and then you have the age of the internet and you have video games being broadcast on ESPN, you have the Last Dance documentary about Jordan and the Bulls, uh, you got some sports things kind of swirling around. Do you see opportunities for the teams that are shut down to market themselves? in a more aggressive way that's relevant to people that are at home and aren't able to attend games? Well, they'd be marketing themselves, but not publicly. So let's say like tickets or sponsorship, you'd be going out to see, uh, business is still operating. So you should go out and see a company and talk to them about the sponsorship opportunities. You go out and see a company about ticket packages. It makes it more difficult not knowing if, when the season is going to be but you could still go out and do things. Like right now, I think is an opportune time for golf courses uh, that need to sell memberships is right now is the best time. This is an opportune time for golf courses who are membership and they need to sell, let's say they're, they're lacking 50 members. Right now is a perfect time to go out and sell people because uh, like in Portland, the weather's been terrific. The golf course has been open in Oregon. You could call on businesses. You could invite people to go out and play golf, uh, to try out the course. Uh, I think there's, this is a time that uh, a, a course could really turn things around. In Oregon, golf play is up 78% this year because people are laid off. They don't have anything to do during the day. The courses are open. The weather's been terrific. And Washington, the state of Washington is right across the river from us. So the state of Washington, they shut down their golf courses. Uh, there was caravans coming from Washington to play the Oregon golf courses. And uh, Washington just opened up last week uh, and the caravan stopped. They're playing at their own courses now. There was a moment in time when they had that window of opportunity. Let, let me, John, I wanna back up a little bit. And you know, most of our audience here they're independent retailers working in the mattress business or maybe the furniture and mattress business. Uh, they're people in the mattress industry and we've you know, faced our own uh, challenges. But I, I wanna back up and do a quick reset because I, I, I wanna talk about principles. And I read on your website, you wrote, 
my most important book is Success is Just One Wish Away because the concept of the book changed your life. Can you tell us about that concept? In fact, I'm going to reissue that uh, with a different title in about a month. Uh, the concept is, well, to distill it down is, and I've done this for most of my adult life, is, well, let me tell you the story first. Uh, and I talked about it in Marketing Outrageously, new is a way of life. Uh, I called on, and I got to know the president of Sony when I was president of New Jersey Nets, and I called on Japanese companies direct. I'd go over to Tokyo two or three times a year. And I sat over dinner one night with the president of Sony. I said, your engineers must be under terrific pressure every year to come up with new ideas, new products. And because once you come out with it, it's uh, copied quite quickly. So there must be a lot of pressure on your engineers. And he said, John, he said, at Sony, new is a way of life. If we don't do new, we perish in the marketplace. And I said, wow, can I write that down? And I wrote it down. And on the flight back from Tokyo to New Jersey, which was like 14 hours, all I was thinking about is new is a way of life. And marketing is what I did with the New Jersey Nets. And so it really didn't come out to be where I'd invent new things. But I'll give you, for instance, uh, every team in the NBA in those days, they would, their brochure, ticket brochure, was the trifold, you know, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And that was their ticket. Nobody ever sold tickets off that. So I asked a friend of mine, Joe Sugarman, who invented the blue blocker sunglasses. You guys remember mm -hmm. the blue blocker sunglasses? Sure. And I said to Joe, I said, cause he has a catalog company of you know gadgets. And I said to Joe, I said, how come you don't use this trifold to sell your products? You always use the catalog. He said, well, the trifold doesn't work. He said, we'd love to do it, except because it's, it's very efficient. It doesn't cost very much to put it together. You can make it colorful. You can do all you want to do, but he said it doesn't pull. It doesn't sell the product. The catalog does. So in New Jersey, we made up an eight-page ticket catalog. And on each page, there was a different ticket package. And it appealed to a different type of fan. And we sent that out and we measured it one way. Is for every dollar that it cost us to put that catalog together, how many dollars did we get back? And ticket sales. Pretty simple way of measuring. And we were getting back at 10 to 1 ratio, which is phenomenal. Uh, so that's new as a way of life. That's part of it is thinking about how can you do things a little bit differently. Instead of doing the, the trifold, which had failed every team ever, they never sold tickets off of it, how do you do it better? So what I've, but I, what I've done since oh, a long time is I want to initiate something new that would improve what I do for a living uh, every 90 days. It'd be up to three things. So when you think about that, what thing can I initiate over the next 90 days to improve what I do for a living? And I could do up to three things. When you start this idea, 
the first thing is pretty obvious. The second thing is pretty obvious. You know, well, I've got to do this if I improve that for 90 days. But I've been doing that for 30 years. Now it comes up to be a challenge of every 90 days. I've got to come up with something new that improves what I'm doing for a living or initiate something new. And so like, I've got a new book that's going to be coming out. I've just been sitting on it because I've been waiting for sort of the economy and business to go back to normal. I hope it's uh, around sometime this summer. But that's part of that 90 days. And that's what success is just one wish away. That's what it's about is developing every 90 days something new to initiate or improve upon. And when you, John, when you think, think about, about it also, if you did that, if you did that, Every 90 days. At the end of the year, you had done four things. If you only did one for 90 days. Yeah, but if, what if you did two? Oh, oh, then that's eight after one year. After two years, that's 16. So you're sort of remaking what you do for a living. Just sort of like one little step by, at a time. You know what I love about that, John, is the fact that it also helps. Keep, number one is that it gives you something to do. But it also helps keep you focused because I think a lot of people get out here and, you know, they're, they're thinking of five and 10 things right. to do and they've got this long list. And, One. but if you, if you simplify that, right. then I think there's a lot of value. Kinsey, I could tell you were about to say something. So what, where were you going with that? Yeah, I was thinking, John, how do you define improvement and, and, what made you focus on, I heard you say, improve what I do for a living. Right. Help, help people define that for people who may be a little Well, I think the about. key to happiness is being successful in what you do for a living. I think if you're successful in what you do for a living, and by the way, success is measured with your parameters, with your judgment. Not, so it's not a, a necessarily a dollar amount. It's not... But if you're successful in what you do for a living, I think that overflows into the other parts of your life that makes it uh, everything fine. So what you do for a improve what you do for a living, that's your judgment. You're the sole judge and jury on which thing you select. Like it's not your boss that would select what you should improve upon or, or initiate. It's you selecting what you think you should improve or initiate and you get 90 days. And <clears throat> You know, I started to do this with the uh, Portland Trailblazers with my staff. And I'd meet with every staff every 90 days. And they didn't exactly know what to improve. So there, there was a conversation. But let's say like an assistant would say, well, I'd like to improve my typing. I'm, I'm a f type 40 words a minute. I'd like to get it up to 80 words a minute. So I'd say, fine. And I, I wasn't judgmental on what they wanted to improve upon. I said, how are you going to do it? And that's, I said, you know, that's where they would sort of stop. They wouldn't know how to do it. And I said, well, you can take a typing school. We'd pay for it. And if you set your mark at 80 words a minute, that's fine. But let's say you get up to 70 and you find out you're typing like a maniac. And that's terrific. You can stop there. You're the sole judge and jury of what to do and where to stop. But every 90 days, you got to come up with something new. Do. What are some of the examples from your own career? Like, what are some of the things you concentrated on or maybe concentrating on now? Uh, well, part of it was, like, I read an article oh, 
few months ago where they said the trend in business books, uh, a trend is shorter books, you know, not 300 page books, but 80 page books. And I thought, hmm, I could do that. You know, <clears throat> I could knock on an 80 page book and instead of a full subject matter, you pick one. I thought, yeah, I could, I could do that. And so I felt that my best attribute was that I was able to get my ideas approved by my bosses. But I've had some pretty, what people think are pretty crazy ideas. And actually when I thought about them, they were pretty crazy too. But I've got the even crazier, I got my bosses to approve it. So I wrote this book called Get Your Ideas Approved. The subtitle is Job skill number one, how to get your boss to approve anything you want to do. And it turned out to, it turns out to be a 78 page book. I'm going to sell it on Amazon for $2 and 99 cents. Audible, uh, how to get things approved. So that was the thing, the 90 day. So John, are you married? Yeah. So does it work at home? I just got to know. <laughs> Can you get your wife to approve your ideas? No. I just got to know. You got to tell uh, our audience. If you applied the principles of my book, you probably could. Uh, <laughs> That's good. That's That's good. A, it's, a, it's a great principle and it's, and it's one I hadn't heard. Uh, now inside the business world, I've, I've used this extensively. You know, Let's concentrate on one thing every quarter so that we can look back at the end of this year and we will have accomplished things as a team. But if everybody's concentrating on some different objective or major, you know, focus point goal, then everybody's doing different things and the group doesn't move forward. But I hadn't thought about it in terms of, you know, what are you going to improve? So tell us how, how did writing that book improve what you do? Was it something like that was in your soul? You had to get out of your head? Yeah. So, well, improve or initiate. So that was initiation and initiate something new. And like a few years ago, I wanted to take 90 days to figure out how I could hit a golf ball 300 yards. Okay, now when you, it's sort of like that typing thing. Well, how, where do you start? How do you learn how to do that? So I go online. I did. I looked into this a lot. I can't hit it 300 yards, but there have been times I've been able to hit it 270. And so, like the typing thing, when you say you want to type it 80 words a minute but you find out that 70 is sufficient. So I found out that with golf, it's all on the hips. And if you do certain hip exercises, uh, that your distances just improve quite dramatically and quite quickly. And so that's what I, I learned that over that 90 days, and I go out and play golf. So, so Jen, one of the things that we find in our business, especially now, um, it with independent retailers, some people are just stuck. And I'm sure you've, you've come across this in the MBA and uh, companies that you probably have consulted with. But what do you say to the guys who like, not only are they not doing the, you know, the every 90 day thing, but they just find themselves kind of stuck in the same place. What kind of comments or advice are you giving to those people? I don't think I could help them. Mm -hmm. I think, I think it's sort of like an alcoholic. The only way they're going to get dry is when they hit bottom and they say, I don't, want to, I don't want to be an alcoholic anymore, and they go and get help. Okay, somebody that's stuck in business, 
I think when they start to get so dissatisfied that then they start to do something. And it may be something that's negative that causes them to do that. Uh, maybe the virus is going to make them to think a little bit differently. But take a look at the restaurants. I was reading it locally here where a restaurateur who owns several restaurants saying that they never really did carry out or delivery. And now people can't go in there. 30% of their revenue, of what 30% of what they were doing is now coming from carry out and delivery. So that was a whole new thing. And it was brought about because of the virus. Mm. You wouldn't have done it without the virus. And I think with any type of retailers, if you feel that you're stuck, this would be the time to get unstuck it was with the virus coming in because this is, once they start opening up, it's, not, it's gonna be a gradual opening up, uh, but it, there's gonna be challenges that we've never seen before, particularly for retail. What's your take on retail right now? You know, you, you, to, you told us your story before we started recording about your recent mattress purchase and you purchased a mattress online, you didn't go into a store, and then you talked about a tire business, and you kind of made, uh, <laughs> kind of connected those two <laughs> things, which we're very familiar with. What's your take on retail and how that, how that might change or what that might look like? Well, I made a comparison with tires and mattresses because it's not a frequent purchase. You know, it's not like you go into a tire store every month, or like you might go for into a clothing store or a bookstore. So, I mean, I, I haven't been, yeah, it's about the same frequency, tire and bed, bedding. Um, so we bought a bed online because of my reluctance to walk into a mattress store and just be assaulted. I'm used to that if I go and buy a car, because I know a little bit more about cars, so I can sort of fight back. And I know a little bit about finance, I can sort of fight back. Um, but I know nothing about beds except to sleep on them, and I'm not sure if I sleep on them. I don't know if I'm an expert on that. So, But John, had you been you shopping for a bed before and been assaulted? I mean, had you had that experience yeah. before, or had yeah. you just heard that that's kind both, of what the both. game is? I, I bought okay. uh, uh, a bed at a vacation home a few years ago. Okay. And I think, holy smokes, look at that. Just, you know. I'm a nice guy, don't treat me that way, you know, but they need to make the sale. And so that led me to look, well, Consumer Reports said that uh, Avocado brand was number one. And that, because I didn't know anything about beds, I took Consumer Reports word as gospel. Well, and I think um, one thing you also mentioned, and we, apply this concept and this principle online or offline is absent of value. People make decisions on price. And I think avocado is one of the brands that builds an incredible amount of value in the product and the service and the follow-up. Right. And they don't right. fall short on making sure they tell people as much information for the detail oriented consumer right. and they build value in it. They do a very fine job of that. See, that's the great thing about the internet is you're able to give a lot of information way more information before a person would walk away with a trifold. Now, if you want to know more about beds, you can go on to, a, and you, like Avocado, they had a lot of information about beds. And so I spent a lot of time online. I was selling myself. I thought it was very well written. And I thought there was uh, 
a lack of phony hype in their copy. You know, I really, if I'm reading some phony hype in there, then it sort of discounts the copy for me. And that, that convinced me. And we did go to one store and uh, I couldn't tell the difference. You know, I lay down on the bed. Uh, we, the salesperson was a nice salesperson, was not pressurized. But I got sold on that copy and the presentation online. Tell, tell us that story that you told us before we started recording. Mm -hmm. Because there's a parallel between buying tires and buying a mattress, and we call it a grudge purchase. Nobody wants to buy tires. Very few people want to buy a mattress because they treat, see it as something that's very utilitarian. I, I got to have tires in my car. These are bald. My mattress right. is bad or I'm moving into a new house. I got to buy it. But you have had experiences where you prefer a certain tire provider and you don't mind going there. Right. I'll pay a premium. I mean, I'll go in there. My wife goes in there and uh, we don't even ask the price. Need four tires. What do you think we need? Put them on. Let me know what it costs afterwards. Uh, and it, because, well, I told you about the experience that I had. I was in Vancouver, Washington, which is just uh, 15, uh, 20 minutes away. I was tra traveling, dry, riding my, uh, driving my car to meet a guy for lunch and the tailpipe, and it was a relatively recent car. The tailpipe started to drag on cement, make all this noise. I pulled into Les Schwab tires and they put it up on the hoist and they said, well, the bracket came undone he said we can put we put a new one up there for you but he said uh this will fix you in the short time but you should probably take it to some garage and have it or take it back to your dealer it's probably under warranty have it fixed and i said fine i said how much does that cost and I said, oh there's no charge <laughs> i said really i said no that's charge no charge um and he didn't even say when you need tires stop stop back uh, it was just their service was so tremendous. And since that time, we've probably spent several thousand dollars on tires. That guy in that store in Vancouver didn't get credit for it, the tires. We bought them in the Portland area, the tires. So, oh, John, there's Les Schwab. There you go. I just wanted everyone to see that. And since we have the ability. If you're listening on the podcast, Mark just pulled up his screen and he's got the the lessschwab.com website yeah, that's a great line isn't it? if you need to be on the road we'll help keep you safe well and that's what i wanted to talk about i just love john kind of your experience and kinsey you and i've talked about this actually how they kind of come to your car and uh it was a discount tires if i'm not mistaken and they come with your 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 your, the, your car with a pad of paper and they should they make it super easy for you to understand here's what your tire looks like here's what it should look like Here's a green, a green, yellow, and red. You know, you're at the yellow, so it's a warning. And then, so anyway, they made it simple. But what, what you're saying about Le Schwab is um, the service aspect. But another thing we talk about in our industry is the fact that their tagline will help keep you safe. It's not about buying a tire. It's about making a purchase decision about something that will keep you safe. So they're really driving hard on the emotional right. element there. Um, how how important do you think that is for people today as they look at their business? Well, you have to choose. Make it about yeah, something more, you, right? You have to choose what, are you going to be a discounter? Or are you going to be full service? Um, it seems like the mattress stores, it seems, that my impression is it's always based on price. 
and the any of the newspaper advertising it's always priced to sale this week and the same thing with tires they flip les schwab doesn't run ads just on price so they probably don't get all the business because there are other tire companies but they get the ones that they want to get so Jen, is there something that people that you see in the normal course of business today that they're getting wrong in terms of how they're marketing their companies? And it doesn't have to be the mattress category, of course, but is there anything that you consistently well, see? Well, yeah, if, you're, if you're local, if you don't have a, a big ad budget, uh, I'm, by the way, I've never been with a company that had a big ad budget. Uh, like in the end- Even NBA, on NBA teams, no kidding. Uh, with, with teams I would, like the New Jersey Nets, they had no money. <laughs> So like other teams were spending $2 million a year on advertising to promote their team. And it seems the, low, doesn't it, Kinsley? $2 million bucks? But this, but this was back in the 90s. Okay, all right. But, this, but, but the New Jersey Nets had $50,000, and that was to buy some billboard ads. Uh, and I told those guys, they said, there were seven owners of the Nets. I said that $50,000 it's not going to be spent for billboards. They like to see the billboards so when they drove to work, it would be the New Jersey Nets up on a billboard. And I said, if you guys want to have the billboard, you can do that, but you got to ante up on your own. The $50,000, we're going to use this, and we used it for a direct response. And we ran advertisements in the newspaper where it was all based on direct response. So let's say an ad cost us $2,000. We want to get $8,000 in ticket sales within two days and if and we do two a week two ads a week we'd never advertise on friday saturday or sunday um it was always monday we'd like monday and thursday if we could get it and it was always on page three in the sports it was on page in the four in the sports section it wouldn't pull page five it wouldn't pull but page three would pull so under those conditions we would do it and we spent the fifty thousand. And we got a quarter of a million dollars in sales. And then we were able to siphon off some of that and spend some more. So, or like that catalog, the ticket catalog, um, we just didn't send it out indiscriminately. We had to gather our own lists to where we sent it out to think that people we thought at least were, had a chance of buying tickets if we presented them the right ticket package. So like a smaller retailer, like I would think like in the mattress business, most people don't drive more than three miles from the mattress store to buy a mattress. I have no idea. Is that, will people drive 15 miles to buy a mattress? If you live in a more rural area and you're like a bedroom But, community, but let's say like Portland, Oregon or Chicago or... Uh, it, it probably or, depends. I don't know that we have the data on that, but I think it depends <laughs> if the voice of the retailer is such that there's a compelling reason. But yes, I think you're right. Okay, let, the assumption is that they're going to stay really close to their home. People, people, let's we say, know that people Google mattress huge, store near me. They Google mattress yeah, store near me yeah. a lot. Right. So let's say if it's a huge one like that, we're talking about that uh, retail store down in Houston. Jim McInvale Gallery Furniture. Right? Gallery Furniture. Okay, people might drive 50 miles to go there. Right. Let's say for a mattress store, I would just guess that your market is probably a five-mile radius around that store. It might be a little bit bigger than that. It might be mm -hmm. seven miles. But I bet it's probably not much more than seven miles. And I don't know that business. So if it, let's say if it's seven miles, you say, okay, that's my market right there. 
what am I going to do? Although those people in that seven mile radius that need that's going to need a bed, which ones are going to need a bed in the next year? Ten percent. And I want to get those people. Uh, so that's I would start thinking that way of saying, okay, how am I going to get that ten percent in that seven mile radius or five mile radius? And back on the Dos Marcos podcast, Sarah Bergman with Pure Care. What's up, Sarah? Hi, everybody. It's so nice to be here. It's great to have you here. I'm, obviously, we're living in unprecedented, kind of crazy times. And, you know, people are hyper focused right now on staying clean and staying germ free. And the bells and the whistles start going off in my head about Pure Care and what you offer. And that's really going to connect with consumers. I think so too. You know, we have built a brand that is focused on creating a cleaner and more hygienic sleep environment. And we've got a lot of different touch points in that that are naturally built into our products today. Protectors, we are the only protectors that can be washed and dried on hot settings for total sanitization. Whenever we're developing pillows, we think about how do we design this with a zipper so that you can take anything you need to out of it, wash it, clean it. So all of those stories are built into our products, our antimicrobial silver product protection story, um, just a lot of great things that we do naturally. Uh, I also though, just wanna to touch on some of the things that we're thinking about. You know, As retailers begin to reopen, what is the experience like for their consumer in their stores um, post COVID? What, what happens? How do we help them create a cleaner experience while people are in the store testing products? So we're really applying every good thing that we've done in the hygiene arena to make sure that even the mattress testing experience, the pillow testing experience is cleaner and better for retailers. Um, so a lot more to come from that on Pure Care side and, and we'll be um, kind of dispersing a lot of information to the industry itself. Um, but as always, check out our website, go to purecare.com, learn more about what we've been doing for two decades to bring cleaner, more hygienic sleep um, to, to customers everywhere. I'm gonna tie some stuff together here, but it's gonna be a, a circuitous route, okay? So you are a legend in the sports industry for dramatically increasing revenue for the Trailblazers, for the Nets, and you're also a legend for the rubber chicken. So you gotta tell the rubber <laughs> chicken story and about the principles underlying the rubber chicken. And the rubber chicken, uh, of the things I've done, that's probably one of the most effective. But I was with the New Jersey Nets, and um, the fans there would not renew their season tickets until about two, two days, three days before the first home game. They'd, they'd renew them, but they wouldn't pay until two days before the because it, it, some of them would then decide, no, this is not what I want. The team's going to be crummy, and they would never pay, and they'd never go to the games. They'd, but the problem is that seat location would, would then be empty, and it was always choice seat location. And we'd rather move the current season ticket holders who up a little bit closer into those than to sell that to a Johnny-come-lately. So it's more of an internal thing. And I told the VP at the Nets, I said, these stand out. There's probably 15 season ticket holders that would do that. And I said, I'm going to send out 
a letter to them telling them our plight and that we're going to give them 48 hours to renew or we're going to yank their season ticket. He says, well, we've done that in the past. He said, they don't even open up the letter. He said, you could send a registered letter. They, they don't even open that up. I said, I bet I could get them to open up the letter. And he says, how are you going to do that? And I think it's over there. Just a second. Let me just walk away for a second. Kinsley, you know this is reminding me of Chicken Stanley. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, you know we did find a replacement for Chicken Stanley. And we have yeah. Chicken Stanley as well. <laughs> there it is. There's the there rubber chicken. Oh, and he's got a, a noose around its neck. He's got a little lanyard. Okay. All right, John. We, we got to get an autographed rubber chicken. That's what's coming. <laughs> Here's the rubber chicken. And we put a little paper out... Uh, paper jersey on it that said don't foul out f-o-w-l <laughs> read the letter and attached to the bottom of the chicken's foot was a letter from me and we put this in one of those three feet fedex boxes triangle ones put that in and sent it out to those 15 season ticket holders so can you imagine if you were a season ticket holder for the new jersey nets and you're not getting a registered letter. You're getting this FedEx box. You wonder, tell me which person would not open up that box. So they open up the box and they pull out this rubber chicken that says, don't fall out. Read the letter. Tell me the person that wouldn't read, couldn't read the letter. And the letter was basically just very point blank saying, we need to know, are you in or out? And here's why. We'd love to have you, but if you decide that the nets aren't for you this year, we understand. And within 48 hours, if you don't let me know that you're in, I'm going to say you're out. And I signed each letter. Um, and the VP said, you can't send that to our season ticket holders. Um, I said, well, watch this. And uh, I get phone calls, guys laughing. And they said they're in. Um, I get a call from an India from a doctor who had an Indian accent, India from India. And he said, "Why did you send me a dead duck?" <laughs> I, I guess the rubber chicken doesn't translate over to India. Uh, we got a hundred percent response, and we solved the problem. Uh, so that. Uh, that you couldn't do to what we're talking about with that five mile radius. Uh, it would be too expensive. Although these things only cost like two, two or three bucks. Uh, but the FedEx box and all that, that'd be too expensive. But there's something that you have to just start thinking what your market is. And in this case, it's a five mile radius. Is a local store going to get somebody that's 15 miles away? Probably cool. not. There's a, there's, there are principles at play here too. And, and one of my favorite principles in marketing is creating a mystery. And so mystery number one was what's inside this FedEx box. <laughs> mystery number two was right. what's in this letter that it's tied to a rubber chicken and why is it tied to a rubber chicken and why am I going to foul out? What did I do to foul out? So you layered mystery after mystery after mystery <laughs> until they're like so curious that our brain gets open loops. It's just, 
it just it just wasn't fair. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, definitely not. But what I like about it too is we're in an attention-based economy, John, and so you earned my time to open that up and give you my attention. And not just that, but you also earned my reaction to that, right? And so you when one thing one thing is to get him to open it, but it's entirely different to get him to act on right, it. Right. But because of your creativity, that's exactly where you went. Do you, do you have any, we talked about a, a good example there. Um, do you have a failure, John, that you can think of over your time in the NBA that maybe you tried something and it just, not only was it not good, but oh, wow. it was like really not good. Do you have any fun stories for us? Well, I've, yeah, I've had plenty of failures. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like okay let's say like uh, let's say like I, I told you about the advertising all the advertising we did we had to measure it if we couldn't measure it we wouldn't do it so um, and I've tried everything with advertising but we'd measure it so let's say you'd run an ad I'll tell you what we um, after I left the Nets I joined a company where we owned uh, seven minor league baseball teams and we would run these ads, which were, let's say, a quarter page in the paper. Let's say, like, the Dayton Daily News or the, uh, Dallas Morning News, I think it was. And it would be equivalent of a quarter page ad. And it would be all copied. Sometimes we wouldn't even have a picture. And we'd look at the ratio for every dollar we put into that ad. How many dollars did we get back? We wanted to get a minimum of $4 back. So if the ad cost two thousand, we want to get eight thousand dollars back, and we measured it. If it didn't pull, we wouldn't run it again. And I know some people say, "Well, it takes time for advertising to work," but not direct response. It either pulls or it doesn't. Uh, so I had general managers. I was president of Mandalay Baseball Properties. I had general managers that said, "These these ads are really crappy. They're all copy, little pictures." Uh, I want to run an ad that's got more pictures, uh, less copy. I said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll let you do it. We'll pay for it. Um, knock yourself out, run the ad, but we got to measure it. And so there were times when we spent $2,000 and it got no response whatsoever. And the general manager said, well, it's got to breathe a little bit. You know, people have got to assimilate it. And, uh, so I'm pointing out to somebody else's failure than my own. But, <laughs> but I also had duds of my own ads. There's certain certain times I thought, gee, this is one of the all-time great ads I've ever seen in my life, and it pulled pulled poorly. And I, it just hurt me that I had to kill the ad. But that's been the truth is you run an ad, ad again, it just doesn't pull. And if an ad does pull, uh, we had one in uh, Dayton with the Dayton uh, Dragons minor league team. And the headline was, it was basically a playoff of um, that movie. Uh, the headline was, Is This Heaven? Kevin Costner movie. The sure. Baseball. Oh, yeah. And that thing started to pull 10 to 1. And it consistently pulled 7 to 8 to 1. We'd run it on Monday and Thursday on page 3, week after week after week. And Bob Murphy, the president of the team, he said, I'm getting so sick of that ad. He said, can't we run a new ad? I said, sure. Um, 
So I wrote another ad, which I thought was better. And I said, we'll try this one. And it pulled really poorly. And he says, what do we do now? I said, go back to the first ad. You know, is this heaven? We ran that thing and it just kept on pulling again. So I found out, and then we took that same ad and we did it in Frisco, Texas. We did it in the different markets we were in, and that pulled. But I found out that certain ads, if it's, pull, if, it's, if it's working for you, you just never stop. If I was still in baseball today, I'd be running that ad. And the only way I'd stop is if the fans stopped buying tickets. Have I'm you heard of the, John, have you heard of the Savannah Bananas? Yeah, I was a, a part owner for a while. Was that right? <laughs> well, we've had, like that's so just, funny. We've had uh, Jesse Cole on the podcast. He, he kicked off the first of this year. You can go back and listen to it. Jesse was on the podcast. Phenomenal. We had a great time. So, so many- Jesse, came, Jesse came to us because uh, he had a team uh, outside of uh, Charlotte. Gastonia. Going, yeah, Gastonia. And he was going to a Savannah, and he wanted us, me and Steve DeLay, to consult with him, but he didn't have any money. And we said we'd consult for a piece of the action. And uh, so we said the whole key in this business is selling every ticket to every game. And Jesse's, you know, just this huge personality. And uh, but he let us do the shape up the business, uh, and we sold every ticket to every game. Jesse's an amazing showman, and now they sell every ticket. Well, they're not playing right now, but they will be playing this summer. So, like Steve and I, then uh, did a team, the Macon Bacon. <laughs> Everybody likes bacon, yeah. John. Yeah, heard about is, is a bacon man. You can buy a bacon suit, in fact. Well, and I love the fact that the Savannah Bananas have made the Macon Bacon their arch nemesis. So now you have focused yeah. on these two teams. I think it's brilliant. Yeah, so like our guys, our guys wanted to do something about that. And I said, like, we can't compete with Jesse. I mean, he's just so creative. Our guys, we had Macon, they good guys. But Jesse is, I mean, he's just like way up there. So I said, just let him build this thing on his own. It's going to help us. And uh, he's having fun with it. Uh, and we're going to benefit by it. But, you, you know, that's good advice, though, John. First of all, Kinsley, how funny is it? And, and how, uh, what are the chances that John here was somehow connected to the Savannah Bananas, who we also had on this show? That cracks me <laughs> up. So I love that. Thank you, John. Um, but I think something you said there is so important because it's something Kinsley and I talk about, which is be who you are. Number one, know who you are. Uh, and second, if you're not Jesse Cole, don't try to be Jesse Cole. Right. Uh, figure out your own path and, um, it, and and go that way. But I think a lot of people make that mistake, don't you? They try to, you know, play the other guy's game and then fail. I mean, I'm sure you've run yeah. across that. But I'm thinking if I'm retail, I'm saying, what's my market? What, how big is it? Right. Do I have a big enough doubt? Do I have a big enough budget to go on television a lot? have a big enough budget to go on cable TV a lot? Um, or what is my market? And if it happened to be a five mile radius, then that's my market. And I want to, I want to dominate that market. What's it going to take for me to dominate that market? It can't be TV advertising because you can't segment that small. Um, how would you, how would I do it? And I don't have the answers for you right now, but, um, 
that's the, that's the way my thinking would be. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great way to kind of position it. You know, what is that piece of real estate I'm going to own physically? And then what's the piece of real estate I'm going to own in people's minds. So positioning your business and, you know, with all the, you know, pretty much like the geo targeting and the way that you can tailor an audience with Facebook and Google and search, there are lots of ways to do that digitally now. And then, but let's, let's actually brainstorm real quickly. So if you don't have any money, or very, very limited budgets and you can't do any broadcast advertising or, or bigger budget stuff. Have you seen any kind of ground and pound marketing that works out there today? Has anything come to mind? Well, I'll tell you, a friend of mine uh, used to have a restaurant and, and I asked him this question. I said, every mom and pop restaurant that I go into at the sort of like a diner type restaurant, They've got a fishbowl by the by the checkout by the cash register where you drop your business card in there. You could win a free lunch. But I always ask when I see that. I said, I asked the person there. I said, "What happens to the losers?" And they'll say, "What do you mean losers?" And I said, "Well, you pick out one person who wins a free lunch. What about those other 20, 30 cards in there? They didn't they didn't win a free lunch. What do you do with them?" Generally, the answer is they throw it away. Now, when you're talking about that radius, if you say, okay, there's 20 people in there, most likely, if it's just like a diner, most likely most of those people come from a radius of probably not more than five miles away. So I put that, I started building a database, but I would send them a letter. Now you can do it with an email. I'd send them a letter that same day. Thank you for stopping in at John's Diner. Next time you come in, uh, I'd like to offer you a free dessert or free coffee. Just mention my name and I'll give you free coffee. Um, the idea being, can I increase the frequency? This is with a restaurant where the frequency is very important. If I can increase a person's frequency from one time every month to twice every month, that impacts my business a lot. So how do you get to know those people in a, like with a tired or with a mattress, which is not as frequent as a restaurant? By the way, the guy did that idea, sent out the letter, and he said the business just exploded on him. He said, nobody goes anymore because it's too crowded. Quote <laughs> Yogi Berra. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I remember that one. No, that's good. I mean, it's even uh -huh. thinking about you know, when you run contests, how, how are you going to build your list? How are you going to use that? that list to, to mine for selling opportunities, whether you're in a high frequency restaurant environment or an infrequent durable good. I, I, would, I would probably do a direct, if it's like that confined area, I'd probably do a direct response, but it would be a letter from me. Like Mark, it'd be a letter from me directly to you. You wouldn't be able to tell the difference that it went to everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would, um, and it would be sort of like Les Schwab. We're here to, if you have to drive, uh, we want to keep you safe. That'd be that tone for sleep. Yeah. How are you going to make yeah. it emotional? How are you going to make let, it? Let me ask you, when I drive down the street, I see in front of a mattress store, there's a lot of times they've got a guy outside that's waving something, mm -hmm. you know, to get you to, does that he's, work? He's, he actually says something. He's saying, please God, come to my store. <laughs> <laughs> we think he's praying actually, John. But I see that all the time. And I'm wondering, does that work? It does. It's an attention grab 
And yeah, it, it does. And so I think it grabs your attention and makes you aware of them being there. But, but does it get people in the store? I haven't once gone, oh, geez, look at that guy. I better go in there and see what the mattresses they've got. So I haven't run a store where I've had people doing it, but I know this, I know enough to say this, that if it wasn't working, they probably wouldn't be doing it. Oh, no, I That's... disagree on that, because I think people <laughs> do things. <laughs> well, I, I can I, tell I've you. I've seen that in the sports business where they, okay, the, the, the trifold, they yeah. do it every year without question. Okay. You have a good point. Um, I, I'll tell you this though. So mattress firm in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, Mr. Yelich, um, Michael um, owns those stores out there along with our good buddy, Harry Roberts. And they had a grand opening I went to and they had a guy dressed up and they were out on the corner for the grand opening. And it definitely did bring people into those stores. Now that was a grand opening, but right. the attention did drive okay, traffic. We go, we go back the, to that, uh, that, uh, the gallery. Mm -hmm. How important, Okay, like a typical mattress store. If I went and bought a mattress today, what's a typical time when they deliver? How much? How how long does it take them for to set it up? Um, Days, weeks, what? Oh, you mean to actually once you buy it to actually deliver right. it to your home? Yeah, those guys are pretty good nowadays. I'd say within a couple of days by the end of the week for sure. So, but if I was at a mattress store yeah. and again that confined area, and I sent out that really personal letter mm -hmm. i would put in there you buy it before three o'clock we set you up for that night mm -hmm. you're sleeping on it that day that night. i think i think you're spot on I, I think here's what i've noticed about the world in which we live whenever you go about solving a problem you want to solve it right then so i have a friend who works in uh at in-home senior care he has a franchise he has a really great business and their team is set up to immediately answer phones and respond online to emails within like 60 seconds to an email. Wow. Because they know that whenever somebody's trying to find a place for mom or dad, they're trying to solve that problem right now. Right. I think the same right. thing applies with tires or mattresses or anything else. So the response time and the ability to solve the problem in a very narrow window is a huge competitive advantage. But it's not only a competitive advantage, it's, it's gonna be table stakes. Well, and also you can beat your competition because the competition isn't doing that. And they're probably not going to think it through stem to stern enough to outline and design that experience so they can beat you. It's being more right. thoughtful about it. This is, right. let's put this on your 90 day list. Yeah. Right. 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 But you know, you know, the thing John's making a good point is on something like a mattress or a tire, you don't want it, you need it. So right, when you right. buy it, you kind of need to have it. And so I think it's a good way to, it's a good thing to focus on is the, is the time that you, from purchase to. Deliver. But if you're talking about like that company that's a little bit worn down and they're just not inspired and they say, oh, that's going to be too much work. Mm -hmm. And it would be because you got, you got to rearrange everything, you know, to be able to jump on it like that. Well, one of the questions I love from your book is what have I done to make money for my company today? Tell, tell us about developing that question. That's a great question for any person, I think, to ask themselves each day. Well, sometimes we just get caught up during the day. And at the end of the day, you're exhausted and you might have put in 14 hours, 12 hours. And then if you looked at what did I do today to make money for my company, you say, well, geez, I met with lawyers. 
and that was the accounting department. Uh, that was the ad, ad agency, which theoretically could provide. But what did I do today to make money? So this is when I was with the New Jersey Nets, and I decided that I was going to make a sales call a day for the rest of my life, for the rest of my business life, uh, which was relatively easy for me to do because we had 20 ticket salespeople and we had uh, three sponsorship sales guys. So I could uh, go along with any of those guys. And I decided to do that, that I would physically go out on a sales call every day. And it's not because I felt that I was a far superior salesperson, just that I thought I've got to get out just into the marketplace. And this forced me to do it once a day to go on a sales call. Well, I got to know the young ticket salespeople, by the way, they were just scared to death about this in the beginning, but the president of the New Jersey Nets was going on a sale, ticket sales call with them. Uh, and they found out that, that it wasn't uh, bad at all. And I got on sponsorship sales. And then when I joined, <clears throat> I did that every day. Um, so what did it take me out of my day? Maybe an hour, an hour and a half. And I got to spend time with the salespeople, got to know them a little bit better. And it showed that the that I felt the emphasis of the company was that the president was going out on sales calls, that this was important. So when I joined Mandalay, where we had seven minor league baseball teams, I'd travel around to visit them. One of the things, if I went to the Frisco team, Frisco, Texas, I wanted to go on a sales call that day. And Dayton, I'd go on a sales call. And uh, wherever we were at, I'd go on Staten Island, I'd go on a sales call. And it just reinforced how important sales were to the teams. We had a lot of young employees. And if the president of the company thought it was important enough to go on a sales call, maybe they should st step up, step it up a little bit. And then you could say to yourself, what did I do to make money for the company today? I went on a sales call. So for right. sure, you reflected right. today, you had something to check that box. Right, right. And, and I'm sure the, the amount of um, information you were able to gather from that and what you were learning from that oh, frontline market. experience, yeah. right? I mean, it was like I was doing uh, product research every day. Right. And company research about your whole staff. I mean, you get to know these people and they get to tell you all these different things that you didn't know what was going on. And um, you know, I thought it was terrific. I thought it was one of the best things that I, that I did. So, so, John, one of the things that we talk about a lot is, so I, I love, because you're talking a lot about direct response. Um, and so that's one way of promoting for sure. But the other part of it, too, is connecting to the consumer, right? So when you're part of a ball club and it's the important part of, and in, in, in sports is so fun and it's emotional. And so you got that going for you for sure. And they connect to the players and all that. But what were you able to do to, to, or how much time did you spend thinking about connecting, not just selling to them and the direct response and getting them to react to your advertising, but can you, can you think of some things in terms of like, like literally connecting with them in terms of experience or getting them to connect with the team on a deeper level? Well, here's one thing. I, um, I never had anybody intercept any of my phone calls. Right. Okay. Anyone call me, they could call me and I'd talk mm -hmm. to them. If, they, if I wasn't available and I left my voicemail, would, would say, this is John Spolstra. Uh, give me your name and number and I'll call you back within 24 hours. And I always did. Uh, 
And in the ticket department, the box office, if there was, I said, if you got any complaints from people that sometimes because it's a sport and it's a emotional, sometimes people can really get nasty. And I said, you get in the customer that's really angry. I said, send them over to me. I'll talk to them on the phone. And so, you know, what would happen is by the time they'd get to me, you know, they'd call up and they'd be angry about something. And, and a person in the box office said, well, if you want to talk to John Spolson, the president of the Nets, he'd be glad to talk to you. And he's, he's in the office and he's available. And they said, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, no, I can connect you right now. By the time they'd connect, the, the guy was just, uh, had laid down, you know, it was just, you know, but, um, so I think probably just answering my own phone. Mm -hmm. um, and I would then call back if I was, in, you know, I'd, I'd probably do 20 callbacks a day. And the way I'd handle it would be, otherwise I'd be calling back all the different times of the day. I'd call back at 1130 in the morning. So if you call me during the morning, if I was on a sales call or I wasn't available, I get back and I would uh, personally get the eight phone messages and write down the phone numbers and keep track. Then I'd call them right back at 11:30, and the next time I'd call back would be at four o'clock. I'd call back twice a day, so that at least I had some type of order and semblance of order to it. This yeah, is that's uh, great. There's a simple. But, you know, I, I was just thinking about this, you know, because we had that connection with Roy Williams. Roy Williams is big and. Got a lot of jewelry clients, and I gotta believe that's sort of akin to tires and mattresses. It's not the frequency of purchase, uh, maybe a little bit more with jewelry than mattresses. But uh, Roy and I, Roy is a master of radio. The stuff that he does on radio is just absolutely spectacular. And if I was in the mattress business, I had several stores. I think I'd hire Roy right away. Or if I had a big mattress store, I'd hire Roy. Because he, t you know, he believes that it's the long play. Um, with my stuff, it's direct response, and I believe you got to order today. So, like Roy and I have come to accept each other's um, style. But for some of this long play stuff, like mattress, yeah, that's just like perfect. And his his style of radio spots that he does for jewelry. I want to buy some jewelry when I hear radio spots. And, but they're in towns like in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's got these great um, teachings around the idea in the vein of radio about if you're selling insurance or something that is a longer sales cycle or more of what we were talking about, durable goods. He says there, you know, there's, there's the emotion, there's building value in it, there's dialogue, there's all these different techniques you can use. But one of them I love is this idea of some sort of audio uh, stinger or indicator that is unique enough to remind you whenever you finally do have that need, you hear that gong going off right. that, that <laughs> goes back to the mattress. So I thought that was a really cool way of thinking about it. You know, if somebody opens up their mailbox and then they finally see that mattress flyer or that direct response piece, maybe the gong right. goes off in their head that maps right. back to something they heard on the yeah. radio give you some more frequency out of it. Yeah. Well, um, I, I got to ask you something, switching back to sports a little bit. Uh, the Last Dance documentary is going on right, right now. 
uh, that's about obviously the Bulls and Michael Jordan and Phil Knight and the entire team in the 90s leading up to the sixth championship. Have you, I, I can ask this, I think, without leading you on. So even if you haven't watched it or if you have, what do you see or remember about that time that maybe the average viewer is not picking up on? Great question. Um, well, it reinforces what a great competitor Michael Jordan was, like crazy competitor. And there was a point, because I was general manager of the Portland Trailblazers about that time, Michael Jordan. And what I was going to do, and I didn't do it, and I fault myself, I wanted to get four autographs and put them on just one area and title it and four greatest competitors. Michael Jordan was one. Um, David Stern was going to be another. But David Stern, while commissioned the NBA, he was really, really a competitive SOB. I mean, really terrific. And I love David. Um, but boy, he could really compete. Um, the third one was Bill Gates. Bill Gates looked like this scholarly guy, you know, that was above the fray. He was in the fray. He was the fray, you know. And the fourth one, I think maybe it was Tiger Woods, when Tiger Woods, the young Tiger. I thought, boy, then there's four real competitors. It's, it's, Michael Jordan, but then this uh, last dance, I mean, I just revel in the fact that this guy really competes. I mean, I don't know of any NBA player, maybe except for Larry Bird, <laughs> who com competed at that level. You, you watched Jordan play. You saw Jordan play right. up close. Uh, was, he, was he a mean guy to other guys in the court? I, you know, I used to hear about him talking trash to Muggsy Bogues, the shortest player in the league. <laughs> <laughs> he talked trash to everybody, I think. Yeah, he and Larry Bird were the king of trash talking. King. Uh, and Michael Jordan would come up with these where his feelings were hurt somehow, you know, and just punish the opponents. I mean, he would invent ways of getting himself psyched up. Uh, I just love love him as a competitor. Michael Jordan, I've never recalled him taking plays off. He always played hard. And I've seen current players who are superstars take plays off. And this idea of, what do they call it, uh, managed, uh, where they take games off, uh, that wouldn't have been Michael Jordan. But I felt at the time he was the greatest player that I've ever seen. I still believe that. So I, I read a book by Tim Grover, who was, right. you probably know him. He was the trainer right. for Michael and, uh, and uh, uh, the late, great Kobe. And uh, anyway, I just love how he talked about those two guys. And he, he calls them cleaners in the book. And there's just something different about them. You know, just they are relentless. They're just there is losing is not an option, and right, uh, right. I, and and I think it's a great principle to apply to business too. It's like you know, you just there are no excuses, and you talk about I love what you were saying, John, about your every ninety days. It's just a it's a mission. It is a journey to continuously improve, and always be looking for a way to um, put yourself in a better position to win. And those guys did right. it all the time. Like uh, Larry Bird, every summer wanted to come up with a new 
skill. This is after he'd become an all-star and become Larry Bird as we knew him. One summer he wanted to develop, become proficient left-handed shooter. And they were on the West Coast trip and they came into Portland and the word came back to me that Larry Bird is going to unveil, he's going to score, he wants to score over 30. He's going to play against the Blazers that night. We had Clyde Drexler and some really great players. Clyde's a Hall of Famer. And he's going to play the game left-handed. He came out and scored 30 against us. And all he did was shoot left-handed. Now, that's a competitor. First of all, you think ahead to develop a skill, and then you say during the season, I'm going to just use, I'm going to test this skill, and I'm only going to play left-handed and get 30. In trash talking the whole way. Who, who are the guys like that today, do you think, John? Are there, I mean, I'm sure there are, but can you think of any players today that, you know, kind of have that same attitude of, uh, you know, win at all costs? Um, Anyone come to mind right off the top of your head? Yeah, and there's some really great players. I'd have to think about that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like Larry Bird and Michael Jordan were. If there was a Hall of Fame just for trash talking, Larry Bird, Gary Payton, and Michael Jordan, uh, that's the Mount Rushmore right there. <laughs> they're, they're the Mount Rushmore of trash talking. Kinsley, Kinsley trash talks me all the time, John. I got to figure okay. out. <laughs> I'm trying to make it to, up to the mountain. <laughs> Well, John, hey, it's it's been really fun having you on the show. Thank you so much for kind of walking us you know, down memory lane and giving us some really great insights into new as a, a way of life and how to treat every 90 days and talking about being a competitor and being a creative, differentiated marketer, all these things that we need uh, you know, coming out of this crazy post-COVID new normal. Um, the creativity, I think, is going to win and the resilience and being a competitor is where we're going to win. So thank you guys. So how, how do I find your podcast? Mattresspodcast.com. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and, and, and John, it's very important that you know uh, a, good, a good friend who, of our show. Who's on next? Who's on, who are you going to have next week? Uh, I'm going to yeah. actually interview Mark, and he's going to interview me next week. <laughs> okay. This was fun. We, we, we do that. No, we, we've got some people um, lined up. I think we're just going to be talking industry stuff and updating uh, retailers about the COVID situation and the funding and all that stuff. So it'll be just kind of a house cleaning thing. But we, we did have on the show. Built so much uh, value in that. That sounds really exciting. Well, I, and I, I haven't looked. It's going to be fantastic because it's just Kinsley and I. And we're going to have our dogs on, John. We're going to put little pictures of our, no. Um, so Chris Cassidy, who's a, um, astronaut and a Navy SEAL, um, he's up on the space station right now, um, doing some work. He'll be living there for six months. We interviewed him on the show wow. and, and we did ask him, um, if he had ever during his entire time in space, had he ever run across a better mattress industry podcast? And he said he had not because our tagline is it's the best mattress podcast in the galaxy. And so that's what you'll see on the splash page of our website is okay. the mattress industry's best galaxy's best mattress podcast. So I'll check it out. Well, thanks again, John. We, we enjoyed it. And how can people find you if they want to uh, find out more, more about your books or your work, your career is at johnspolstra.com. Yeah. Or 
you know, in my book, I put in my email address and yeah, find John at MSN.com. Find F I N D J O N. And that's how I found, that's how I found John. And, and, and everybody listening to this, Kinza and I talk about it a lot, but it's really important, we think, that we look outside of our industry for inspiration and examples of what to do. Uh, you can't get stuck. You can't stay where you are. And that's why um, we're so grateful to have John on. He can give us different perspective. Principles don't change. Tactics might. Um, but here's a guy that's uh, been kind enough to give us time. So be sure to go out, get his book, read through it. Uh, connect to him and pay attention because he's done a lot of great stuff that you can definitely apply to what you're doing. And, um, and it's worthwhile. John, and when is your next book uh, hitting? You had mentioned it earlier. Yeah, I think I'm going to release it the middle of June. I've got to wait and see how the economy is going. Like right now, the business books I read are down 33% in sales. Wow. And so th I think in America, it's just sort of like waiting you know, they're waiting to see what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And like the various openings, everybody's sort of like waiting and seeing. The book is finished. It's ready to go. Um, but I want to launch it when people are reading or want to read. I think well, people are hungry for information, information right now, but they also sense that business is changing. And it's kind of getting back to that place where I'm ready to. And it's uh, the most important thing you can do is. Right. And it's one of the most important things is uh, how to get your boss to approve anything you want to do. <laughs> Meaning your wife, Mark. <laughs> well, let us know whenever it's out too, and we'll put it up on our website and we'll let people know when it's available because, hey, guess what? There was a period in time when I had to try and get my boss to, to do what I wanted him to do. And Mark Quinn was my boss. You did. You got to do everything you wanted to do. Come on. <laughs> he usually took it and like made it bigger. And then I made what he did bigger and we just snowballed from there. So it was always fun. Well, thanks again, John. Okay. You're, you're you awesome. Appreciate you guys, it. You guys are terrific. This was fun. You can bounce on it. Oh.